So 1 Timothy chapter 5 and starting at verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions too so that no one may be open to blame. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also gossips, and busybodies, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them, so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Thanks, Emma. Good morning, church family. Um, please get our Bible passages open in front of you. My name's Joe Standerwick, if we haven't met. I work uh, with university students here, and um, it's a real privilege to be opening up God's Word with you this morning. Let's pray again as we come to this passage. In 2 Timothy, Paul urges Timothy to preach the word in season and out of season. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've given me the awesome privilege of preaching your word today. Please strengthen and help me to preach faithfully. And please help all of us to apply our hearts to what we're hearing so that our local church might better hold out the glorious truth of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, I want to begin by um, just getting you to turn to a, a neighbour, somebody near you, and um, having a think, what is the connection between these three organisations that I'm about to name? Uh, VW, the car manufacturer, FIFA, the football association, and Uber, the taxi service. VW, FIFA, Uber. Have a turn to your neighbour just for 10 seconds. What's the connection? Okay, that's enough time. What's they have in common? Well, there might be lots of connections that I haven't realized that, that you uh, might have done. But in my mind, these are large, powerful organizations involved in high-profile cases that have lost them their credibility. I wonder if that's what you came up with. Maybe not in those exact words. <laughs> But in different ways with these uh, three organizations, the trust of employees, customers, supporters, built up over many years, was rapidly lost almost overnight uh, through different uh, situations for the different companies. We all know the tragic fallout that comes from an organization that loses its credibility through a scandal or something else. And yet the Bible would teach us that when it comes to um, these high-profile cases, they are nowhere near as tragic as when an ordinary local church loses its credibility. That church might consist of 20 people, or 200 people, or 2,000 people. They might gather in a shiny auditorium, or a, a rather dark chapel, or um, a rundown hut. Wherever that church is, if a group of believers fails to live out its God-given purpose, and loses its credibility, it is tragic. Why is it so tragic? Well, in this letter of 1 Timothy, we've been seeing that there really is nothing on earth quite as extraordinary as the local church. A group of people saved by the immeasurable mercy and patience of the living God. A group of people who are now being transformed and reordered by the gospel of Jesus Christ, a group of people who are called in chapter 3 the household of God, the church of the living God who exist for the salvation of the world. And if that is right, if there is nothing as extraordinary as the local church, then it follows that there's nothing so tragic as a church that loses its credibility, a church that fails to live out its God-given priorities. So in our passage this morning, as Paul gets very practical and very earthy, as he teaches us what it looks like to live as God's family, he's doing so that, so that the message of salvation might ring out to those around us as our reputation as God's people is maintained. We're going to think today about widows and how to care for widows. We're going to think about how to relate to our family members Lots of practical, seemingly ordinary matters. But as one preacher put it, speaking on this passage, these things that we read here are unusually ordinary. Unusually ordinary. There's something radical and attractive about what we'll read in these verses because this is God rightly ordering his countercultural community so that others might hear the message of Jesus Christ so let's dive in as we think first about life in God's family in verses 1 and 2. 
Now, if you were here last week, you might remember that the tone of the letter has shifted, and Paul has begun to address Timothy very directly in the letter. And that shift continues into chapter 5. Have a look with me at verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. I was chatting to a friend recently at church who who said to me that it was only when coming here as a student that he began to hear church talked about as a family, church family. It wasn't language that he was used to, but he found it very helpful to remember what a church is. And these couple of verses remind us that family is a really important way that we understand relationships in our local church. As we've already heard from chapter 3, verse 15, the church is God's household, God's family. And in these verses we see that this family reality should shape relationships in church. It's not just a nice thing to say, we're a family. It's a truth that has a profound impact for how we relate in church. Now, we don't have loads of time to go into these two verses, given um, the the sort of length of the passage, but just let's look briefly um, at them. Um, Firstly, older men. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Last week, we heard um, some people in the church who seemed to be looking down on Timothy because he was young. Do you remember um, chapter 4, verse 12? And in that situation, if there is grumbling or unkind words or snide remarks or simply just a lack of respect for Timothy from the older men, the temptation might have been for Timothy to use his authority as a leader and rebuke them harshly in ways that weren't gentle and weren't self-controlled. But Timothy is to set an example to the believers in his speech, and part of that is not rebuking harshly, but instead exhorting the older men. Now, exhorting is not just an arm around the shoulder or a nice compliment. It's the same original word that's used in chapter 4, verse 13, um, which is translated preaching, the word of exhortation that we saw there. It means urging older men to live lives worthy of the gospel. But as he does so, he needs to consider how he would speak to his own father. Just think of a healthy father-son relationship. There's appropriate respect and honor that is given to the father by his son. And so Timothy needs to consider what would it look like for him to exhort his own father? What kind of tone, approach, manner would be appropriate? And he needs to let that set the pattern for his relationships with the older men in the church. Now, we're going to see in chapter 5 next week that there are situations where the elders will be rebuked publicly for their sin. So it's not the case that Timothy will never rebuke an older man, but he's not to do so harshly. He's to recognize that he is a younger man, that he must honor the older men and not be harsh with his words. And I imagine that there are many older men in many churches around the world who've been left discouraged or embittered when a younger minister has not heeded these words. Now, that same framework should also affect the way that Timothy treats younger men. Now, in my role uh, as student worker, I've had uh, lots of conversations with younger men over the years, and some of them have been much more direct than if I was speaking to an older man. It's been more like speaking to a brother than speaking to a father. Timothy is also to treat older women as mothers with appropriate respect 
and he's to treat younger women as sisters. Now, there's an interesting extra line, isn't there, um, there in verse 2, that is, is very small but also very potent. Treat younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Now, again, chapter 4, verse 12, Timothy was to set an example to the whole church in the area of purity. And here, particularly in his relationships with the younger women, he is to conduct himself in absolute purity. Again, family relationships. How would I treat my sister? How would I seek to encourage her and relate to her? Well, that should set the tone and the pattern for how I relate to younger women as I uh, pastor in this church. And again... How many ministries have been ruined because these words have not been hindered? So Paul is wisely reminding us here that we are God's family, not just an institution or a team or a club, but a family. And as we relate to one another, we don't just relate as one monochrome group. We relate as men and women, and not just men and women, but as older men and older women and younger men and younger women. And I'll leave you to discuss over coffee what it might look like to live that out in our conversations, in our growth groups, in our relationships with one another. So going back to Timothy, it's important that he gets this right because he's going to be speaking into very challenging situations here in Ephesus. Just think back over the letter and what we've seen so far. He's going to have to address controversy. He's going to have to fight the good fight to urge men to pray, to urge women to live out their God-given roles. He's going to need to appoint leaders and to make sure that the wrong sorts of leaders aren't getting into positions of leadership in the church. All the time, he's going to be dealing with older men, younger men, older women, younger women. And that's true as he gets into the tangly, difficult situation that we're going to now read about um, within the church concerning widows. Here are older men, uh, sorry, older women and younger women, and their families too, who Timothy needs to instruct and encourage and help. How can he do so, um, given that family relationship we've seen in verses 1 and 2? That's what we're going to think about, as we think about widows in God's family. Now, we're going to get into the details of these verses um, in a minute, but before we do, I wonder how you'd summarize what the heart of the issue is, the heart of the problem um, here in Ephesus when it comes to the widows in the church. Now, if you read ahead uh, during the week or you just heard the passage read um, by Emma from the front, what is the real issue that Paul wants Timothy to address in the church? How would you answer that? Well, as I came to these verses a couple of weeks ago, I think I assumed that Paul's command was something like, make sure widows are being cared for in the church. Or more simply, Timothy, care for the widows. But as we read these verses, the situation becomes a lot more nuanced, and we quickly see that that's not the real issue. If Paul's command was just, make sure widows are cared for, why doesn't he cut to the chase? You know, James, for example, in his letter in the New Testament, is much more concise than Paul is here. He writes, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Close of matter. Point made, look after widows. But Paul uses a lot of parchment here, doesn't he, to make his point to Timothy. It seems just from a glance over the letter that this is the longest single issue um, section in the letter so far. So just saying care for widows 
is not going to cut it. There's a huge amount of detail here that we're going to get into. And actually, um, as we read through these verses, we see that widows are being cared for by the church. The believers are putting their religion into practice and obeying God's command to care for widows, but they're not doing so wisely. Now, by way of context, we need to know that in a society like this one, first century Ephesus, widows were in a real position of vulnerability and need. Just think about it. No welfare state, no care homes, no handouts. It was not as simple as getting a job because many jobs were closed off to women, and so they were financially vulnerable, physically vulnerable, and in danger of being left on the margins. And churches, as compassionate communities of grace, as James reminds us in his letter, were called to care for the widows in their midst. This church is no different, and they seem to be doing it. The issue is that widows, uh, sorry, the issue is not that widows were being neglected. The bigger issue is there in verse 3. Have a look at verse 3. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. It's a phrase repeated in verse 5, the widow who is really in need. Again in verse 16, so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Do you see that Paul wants proper recognition to be given to needy widows, those who genuinely need the care and protection and provision of the church? The word used at the start of verse 3 could be translated honour. Honour those widows who are really in need. And just so you get your bearings in these next couple of chapters of 1 Timothy, that idea of honour comes up twice more um, in the next few verses. Honour shown to elders in verse 17 of our chapter. And then honour shown to masters in chapter 6, verse 1, which is translated there as respect. So three groups in these verses to whom honour is due. And the first group is not widows in general, but widows in the church who are in real need. The church is to honour them both by bestowing respect and also by providing for them materially. So the issue, if you see it with me, is not that all the widows were being neglected by the church. The issue is that some widows were being provided for by the church when they shouldn't be. And it was causing a real mess. There is disorder, there's distraction, there's a draining of resources. It's hindering the reputation of the church. It's actually leading to ungodliness, as we'll see. And this church is then failing to carry out its God-given mission. So Paul wants to see order in the church so that the crucial task of promoting the truth might continue. So the question comes then, who are the widows who are in real need? Who should the church be caring for, and why does it all matter? Those questions carry us right through our chapter, and all the way through, Paul is making a distinction between widows in general and a smaller group of widows who are in genuine need of the church's care. So let's come, um, secondly, in this section, to the widows in need. He starts by saying that some widows don't actually need the church's care. Look at verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family 
and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. Do you see that Paul is saying that the primary source of care is the family? And if a widow has family around them who are able to provide that care, then they should do so. There is an expectation and obligation that falls on the family. It's consistent with the fifth commandment in the Old Testament, isn't it? Honour your father and mother. Here is a way to honour them by caring for them in their need. And the care they offer is described by Paul as a repayment in verse 4. Our parents and grandparents have given to us life, in many uh, cases material provision, support, help, assistance. I know this won't be universally true, but generally our parents have provided for us And part of living a life of godliness will be repaying them for their care. And we're given a wonderful motivation, aren't we, at the end of verse 4. For this is pleasing to God. I know that there are many in this room who are caring for elderly relatives or supporting widows in their families or trying to love their grandparents. Isn't this a wonderful truth to remember? That this is pleasing to God that the often tiring, often thankless task of family care is pleasing in God's sight. That's the positive motivation. On the flip side, um, just look down with me at verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. As we look around in our world, we see people outside the church um, seeing the value of family, people who don't know Jesus, caring for elderly widows, supporting them in their need. And so what does it show about believers if we are the ones who neglect our family and who go against the natural grain and who go against God's command to honor our father and mother? Do you see that part of living a faithful life for Jesus will be this very practical point of valuing our family and caring for members who are really in need. But in Ephesus, there are widows who don't have that kind of support in their families and who therefore need the help of the church. We see that in this contrast that comes out in verses 5 and 6. Have a look at verse 5. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead, even while she lives. Now, verse 5 talks about a widow who really does need the help of the church and is worthy of that care because she's left all alone. No relatives to help her, no children or grandchildren who can repay her for the care that she has shown them. But you see that it's not just her lack of family that qualifies her for the church's care, but also the fact that she's a Christian. That's what verse 5 is teaching us. She's a faithful, prayerful Christian woman. And so when her husband dies and she's left all alone, she doesn't abandon God or doubt his goodness, but she hopes in God. It's a refrain we see throughout the Psalms to describe a person who knows God. They hope in him. It's a phrase used in chapter 4, verse 10. We have put our hope in the living God, the saviour of all people, especially those who believe. Here is a widow left all alone, but not without God. 
And so she puts her hope in him and she prays to him night and day. I want you to contrast that person with the widow of verse 6. A widow who lives for pleasure and who is dead even while she lives. She's the kind of person who waits for retirement so that she can spend all her money on living for the things of the world. Cruises, fine dining, gold jewellery, all the pleasures of life that she's been working so hard to enjoy. The things that people would point to and say, ah, now she's really living. Look at her in the twilight years, enjoying all the pleasures of life. People would say she's getting the most out of life before she goes to her death. But Paul would describe her as dead, even while she lives. Because she does not know the living God. She's traded the pleasures of his presence for the pleasures of the world. And so she has no hope of the life to come. Now, just as an, as an aside, it's worth saying that for an older Christian who has put their hope in God, that there is never a time when we retire into the pleasures of this world. An older Christian will simply continue to do what they've always done because they know that that is the best way to live, serving Jesus, praying to him, being at church, loving their families, and being useful however they can. And praise God for the examples of that kind of life among us. Paul is beginning to distinguish, isn't he, between a larger group of widows and the widows who are in real need of the church's help. The church should care for widows who are genuine Christians, not living for pleasure, but living for God, and widows who are genuinely all alone, who do not have families who can care for them. But there's more that Paul wants to say about widows in real need. And in the next few verses, he continues to draw a distinction between widows as he talks about the list, um, beginning in verse 9. Some widows should go on the list, and some, verse 11, should not. I guess you're wondering, like I was as I read this passage, what is the list? Well, Timothy in Ephesus would know exactly what Paul was talking about, wouldn't he? As we read these verses 2,000 years on, we've got a bit more work to do. And as we try and put together what's going on here, um, there are two main ideas out there um, as to what this list is. Let me, um, let me tell them to you. The first is this, is that this could be a list of widows who have been registered to formally serve the church. So imagine it as a, a kind of a group of um, elderly female deacons who are set apart for an official ministry in the church. And their ministry involves those things that we see in verse 10, things like showing hospitality and caring for the troubled. Now, there are wise Christian writers and preachers who go for that line of argument. John Calvin, John Stott, obviously has some weight. But I think it's better to go with a second proposal, which is to see this list as a group of widows who are being formally cared for by the church, an official care list of widows. That makes more sense to me um, in the context. Paul has already talked about widows in real need. In verse 16, as he concludes this section, he will return to that point and say that family members should care for their elderly relatives so that the church might not be burdened. It would seem strange to me that in the middle of those things, he would then talk about a formal register of serving widows rather than um, carrying on that same sort of theme that he's had of widows who should be cared for by the church. 
And then another verse that adds uh, weight to this, I think, is the list of characteristics in verse 10. It reads less like a job description for deacons and more like a track record of good works that would qualify someone for the church's care. It's all in the past tense rather than the present tense. So feel free to disagree with me. Feel free to discuss it in growth groups during the week. But I'm going to take it as referring to a list of widows who who receive formal care um, from the local church. Widows who the church recognizes because of the list as people who are in real need. So who should go on such a list? Look at verse 9. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. Two things are emphasized here about the widows who should be enrolled. Maturity of age, we might say, she must be over 60, and also maturity of character. Now, we'll come on to why age is important in a minute, but let's look first at her Christian character. For a widow to be qualified for the care of the church, she needs to be someone with a proven track record of good deeds. Do you see that phrase, good deeds, is used twice in these verses? She is well known for her good deeds. If you mention her name to people in public, people will think immediately of her character and her good works. She's someone who, at the end of verse 10, has devoted herself to all kinds of good deeds. She spent her life chasing after every good opportunity to serve Jesus and to serve others. And here are some examples in verse 10. She's been faithful to her husband. She has brought up children. She has shown hospitality. She's washed the feet of the saints, which means getting her hands dirty in the lowly, servant-hearted tasks of the church. And finally, she's helped people who are in trouble. What a wonderful, ordinary picture of a godly woman. Imagine with me a young woman sitting down in a careers interview and being asked, what do you hope to be remembered for when you're old and grey? And she says, I hope people remember me as someone who showed hospitality, who served the needy, and who brought up my children well. That's what I want to be remembered for. We might find that strange, but at this point in 1 Timothy, we shouldn't be surprised at all by this description of a woman of character. We thought about the godly woman in chapter 2, someone who is more concerned about her character than her clothing. Someone who treasures godliness more than gold, and so adorns herself with good deeds. Well, here is that woman in her 60s or 70s, as we look back on her life with a beautiful trail of good deeds and still more ahead of her. Paul is saying, put this kind of woman on the list, not because she's earned a pension with the church, but because she's lived her life as part of the family of God. She's a proven believer with a credibility who won't try and sponge off the church, and she's someone who needs the care of her church family now because she's in a position of vulnerability with no one else to turn, nowhere else to turn. Well, if that's the kind of widow who should be on the church's care list, who then should be refused? Well, it's really those who don't fit into either of those categories that we've just seen. Timothy needs to refuse those who are immature of age or who are immature in their Christian character or both. 
Let's look at the first part of verse 11 before we get into some of the more tricky stuff. Um, Verse 11, as for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. And rather than enrolling them in the formal care of the church, Paul counsels them to do uh, verse 14. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. So for the older widows, 60 and over, the opportunity for marriage and for bearing children and for those children to grow up and care for her in her widowhood are now in the past. She really is alone and needs her church family. Whereas Paul is saying that the younger widow is not in the same need because she has the opportunity to marry again and live out her Christian life in the context of a family to have children, to be involved in that difficult and worthwhile task of managing the home and to devote herself to good works in an ordinary, godly life of motherhood. Now, we're going to come back to this theme in a moment, but I want to go back to verse 11 and see what Paul says in between. So verse 11 again, As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not to. In verse 11, Paul can't be saying that it's wrong for younger widows to marry because of verse 14. He's going to counsel them to marry. But the situation seems to be arising in Ephesus where a widow is placed on the list and at some point after that wants to marry and by doing so breaks their first pledge and so incurs judgment on themselves. Well, I'm glad we've cleared all of that up. I think we can move on at that point. Um, There's a lot of discussion, as you can imagine, about that phrase at the end of verse 12. They've broken their first pledge. What's going on um, there in verse 12? And again, really it boils down to two main ideas. And I think if we understand this, it'll help us understand what's going on um, in these verses. First, this pledge could be a pledge that the widows have made to Jesus himself. Is it a pledge to Christ? They've pledged themselves to him in faith, promising to live with him as their Lord, and yet they break that pledge and they abandon their faith in him and so bring judgment on themselves. How do they do that? How do they break the pledge? Well, the suggestion is that these young widows are so overcome with a desire to marry that they are willing to marry um, non-believers, thus going against God's commands and so abandoning their faith in Jesus. Just have a look at uh, another of Paul's commands in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 39 on the screen, where he writes, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. So maybe the younger widows are desiring remarriage, but are willing to marry someone who does not belong to the Lord. And so their desire at that point overcomes their dedication to Christ. That's the first option. Now the second option is that the pledge is not a pledge the widows have made to Jesus Christ, but a pledge to the church. 
They've made a vow of lifelong dependency on the church and are committed to living out a life of undivided service to Jesus in their newfound singleness. But by marrying, they break that pledge to the church. Do you see those two options? Now again, we're trying to put together what's going on in this situation with the information that we have. I think I lean more towards the second option than the first, because the first introduces a new idea into the text about unbelieving husbands. But whether it's young widows breaking their pledge to Christ, I'm going to leave you to untangle this in growth groups again this week, whether it's younger widows breaking their pledge to Christ by marrying an unbeliever, or breaking their pledge to the church when they said they'd remain single, whichever it is, by being placed on the list, they are foregoing the ordinary opportunity of remarriage that is available to them, And at some point down the line, their desires are leading them away from dedication to Jesus. It would be better for them to marry, verse 14, and to give the adversary no opportunity for slander. Now added to this is what's happening in Ephesus when younger widows are being placed on the list for the church's care. Some seem to be using that position to exploit the church and to, to get the resources from the church that they need, and then living a life of immorality. Have, we see that in verse 13, benefiting from the church's provision, and yet going about being idle, gossiping. It's leading some, verse 15, to abandon Jesus altogether, turning after Satan instead. So I hope you're seeing something here of the disorder in this church in Ephesus. Can you see that much of this disorder as well is flowing from a low view of the family and a low view of marriage and a low view of the home? And as we think about that, remember the context in Ephesus. Remember that false teaching has infiltrated this church. And one strain of that false teaching is the idea that marriage is forbidden for a Christian. We see that in chapter 4, verse 3. The teachers forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. So the tenor of their teaching was to reject the good gifts of God, including marriage. So they were effectively saying, if you decide to get married, then you can't live a godly life for Jesus. So we have younger widows who, rather than marrying, are being enrolled on the church's list. And there's a general sense for the women in the church that being a wife and raising children and devoting time and energy into managing a home was somehow beneath a woman who professed godliness. Do you see that the anti-gospel teaching of the false teachers had an anti-family flavor to it? Don't we see that in our world as well so often? That to be opposed to God's ways is often to be opposed to the family. And so we see attempts all around us to deconstruct the family and to devalue what God values and to deceive us into thinking that the family really doesn't matter. Which is why these verses are such a refreshing reminder of what we saw in chapter 2, verse 15, where Paul wrote, women will be saved through childbearing. In other words, women are able to live out lives of godly beauty in worship of God, in faith, love, and holiness, as they get married, 
and raise children and see grandchildren into the world and show hospitality in the home and care for those in need. That life of real, earthy, ordinary godliness is pleasing in the sight of God. Do you see how unusually ordinary this teaching is here in 1 Timothy? Paul is saying that it is not ungodly and not unwise for a woman to use the prime of her life for the eternally significant task of being a wife and managing the home and bearing children and washing the feet of the saints. Now I realize that I haven't said much about singleness in this sermon. And just to be clear, Paul does not teach in the New Testament that the only way to be a godly woman and to please God is to get married and have children. There are many women who will remain single, and that does not rob a woman of an opportunity to live a godly life. 1 Corinthians 7 is very clear about that. But I wonder if the reason for um, the strong emphasis in 1 Timothy on marriage and family is to try and swing the pendulum away from the false teaching that says that marriage should be forbidden and towards the glorious reality of godly family so that we as believers might be unashamedly pro-marriage, pro-family and pro-children, that we might push back against an anti-God agenda that would seek to undermine those things and that we would refuse to be ashamed of God's good order. Now, as we conclude, I want to spend our final few minutes taking a step back and thinking about the big purpose in view in these verses. If you're taking notes, you can scratch out that heading that says conclusion, because this is now the conclusion, the the purpose in view. Remember that we said that the main message is not care for widows. The church is already doing that. What Timothy needs to do is make sure that needy widows are receiving care, first from their families, But if they're all alone, then from the church. But even with those things in order, there's still something deeper going on in these verses. There's a bigger purpose in Paul's mind, which is why he devotes so much time to this issue. As with the rest of the letter, the salvation of the world is at the forefront of his mind. And he's convinced that this salvation is bound up with the ordinary life and reputation of the local church. Just look at verse 7, a verse that we passed over. What is the point of Timothy bringing this message to the church? Verse 7, give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. It's the same word we saw in chapter 3, where the elders of the church need to be men who are blameless, above reproach, credible, reputable. And as you read 1 and 2 Timothy, you'll see that these letters are filled with references to the reputation of individual Christians and the reputation of the church. It matters, and it is a tragedy when it's lost. Because as we live our lives in the family of God, conducting ourselves in godliness, we are doing so for the benefit of the world. Every church family, which is the church of the living God, is a pillar of and foundation of the truth. As others look in at our life together, our words to one another, the way we value children, the way that we pray, the way that we love our spouses in our marriages, the way we prioritize the gospel, the way we thank God for his good gifts, this is how the gospel is made known. Yes, we must teach the truth, as we've seen all the way through 1 Timothy, declaring, promoting, speaking the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified for sinners. We need to fight to keep that gospel at the heart of who we are. 
But we also need to let that gospel flow out into our family life together, ordinary family life as the people of God. So when Timothy begins to do this hard work in Ephesus of urging families to care for the needy ones among them, when he removes younger widows from the list and counsels them to marry, when he holds up the good order of marriage and children and the beautiful good works that can be done in the context of the home, he's doing so so that the mission of salvation might go forth, so that the world might look in and see God transforming this church to be a loving, caring community of the gospel, but not just so that they can look in from the outside, but so that they might come in and join the family of God through the Lord Jesus. This is the kind of compelling community that we need to be, that we need to pray for. And so I'm going to give you a moment to reflect on what we've been hearing, and then I'll lead us in prayer. I'm writing so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful, refreshing, unusually ordinary commands you've given us here in 1 Timothy. Help us, please, to live out these commands by caring for our families, by honouring those in our church who are in need, and by holding up marriage and motherhood as a blessing from you. And we pray above all, Father, that we would live credible lives that flow from the gospel so that others might hear and see and believe the truth as it is lived out among us. We pray for salvation for those that we know and love. And we ask, Father, that even this morning there might be some here who come to know you as their Father through trust in your Son, and so become part of the family that you are building. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.